0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. It's Friday. Let's pump (laughs) up some jams and just coast into the weekend, okay? We've got two music books for you today. In a bit, we'll hear about the long history of Black performers and country music. But first, we've got Susan Rogers on the pod today. Her resume in music as a sound engineer and producer is pretty unimpeachable. You'll hear more about her career, but her big claim to fame is working with Prince when he was at his commercial peak. She co-wrote a book called This Is What It Sounds Like, which breaks down why we love the music we love. And there's a part in this interview with Here and Now's Robin Young where they're talking about a Lana Del Rey lyric that out of context is kind of silly and ridiculous, but Rogers breaks down why our brains, or at least mine, finds it irresistible.
1: You have
2: your favorite song, right? The one that speaks to you? This is one of mine, Glenn Campbell singing Jimmy Webb's Wichita Lineman. I hear- That leaves you cold. Why do some of us adore that song, some don't? Why do some prefer the Rolling Stones to the Beatles? Why have I formed a religion around Joni Mitchell but sometimes can't remember her lyrics? Well, a new book explores how sweet spots in our brains steer us to different aspects of music. And the author knows a thing or two about this. When Susan Rogers was just 20, she was loving Zeppelin at the Forum in L.A., but she had to leave because her husband kind of resented her love of concerts. Well, right then and there, fist high, she made a vow to the rafters that one day she'd return to the Forum and mix live sound for an amazing band. And she did. She became sound engineer for Prince, in studio and on the road, on hits including Purple Rain. Susan Rogers is now a multi-platinum record producer. She's also a professor at the Berklee College of Music and a cognitive neuroscientist. She's been busy. Her new book is This Is What It Sounds Like, which she co-wrote with Ogie Ogas, who has a Ph.D. in computational neuroscience.
3: Susan Rogers, welcome. Oh, hello. Thank you, Robin. I'm really happy to be on the show. You mentioned Wichita Lineman. Yeah. That song makes me weak in the knees. I know. I love it so much. Okay, well, just talk for two seconds about that. What do you think it is about
2: Wichita Lineman within the context of what you teach us in the book? I think it's maybe
3: Melody more Mm. than it is lyrics. If I looked at the lyrics on the page, I don't think they do for me uh, what some other lyrics do. But for that particular song, oh, that melody just kills me. Well, and for some people, as you point out, it would be the words, it would be the
2: story. They picture a lineman out on a pole and, you know, they're not having the feelings of the melody that are maybe bringing Mm. up other images for them. So let's hear how you think about these
3: sweet spots in our brains. Yes, in this book, Ogie and I talk about seven dimensions of music listening, each one of which can give you a jolt of pleasure. Four of them apply to music, and that is melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre. Timbre is sound itself. And the other three are aesthetic dimensions that apply to Ballet and opera and movies and television and novels. And that would be authenticity, which is your perception of where the expressive gestures are coming from. And uh, novelty versus familiarity. Some of us like those groundbreaking works and others like our art to be a little bit more familiar. And then the last one is realism versus abstraction. Some of us like works of art that are grounded in the the real physical world and others like works of art that are a little bit more reflective of an imaginary world.
2: Staying with this idea of melody being a sweet spot, you talk about Frank Sinatra in his later years a master of melody, I didn't realize how much he studied it. Let's listen to his 1966 version of It Was a Very Good Year first.
0: When I was 17 It was a very good year It was a very good year For small town girls And soft summer nights We'd hide from the lights On the village green When I was seventeen
2: Okay, Susan, I can imagine some listeners saying, oh, my God, I had to hear this every single second for like a decade. Mm. But I hear it new now, uh, having read some of the things you described Sinatra working so hard to do. Can you tick off just some of the things that, that he did, like how
3: he trained his voice? Oh, he trained his voice by, uh, first off, learning something kind of like circular breathing. Sinatra reasoned that if he could learn to actually inhale at the same time while he was kind of exhaling, kind of a circular breathing kind of thing, he could make his vocal phrases last longer than normal, and that imparts to the listener this subtext of great lung power and virility. He took up running and swimming, and there were rumors that Sinatra had an extra rib, but I don't know if that was true. (laughs) Okay, so there's just a, a look at melody, and again, there's so much
2: more in the book, but then lyrics. Um, You point to a particular song, Lana Del Rey's This Is What Makes Us Girls. Let's listen. Remember how we used to party up one night? Sneaking out looking for a taste of real life. Drinking in a small town firelight. Paps blue ripping on ice. Sweet 16 and we had arrived. Walking down the streets as they whistle high, high said we never make it out, ok, Susan Rogers, I am in a movie now, and yeah. I don't think that would be the same
3: without the Paps blue ribbon on ice mm. And walking down the street while they whistle high, high, don't we know exactly what she's talking about? Yeah such evocative lyrics. So sometimes when we are craving a musical treat, sometimes we want to move our bodies and we're going to select a record that matches our rhythmic sweet spot. Other times we want imagery, we want poetry. We're going to select those lyricists that do that for us. Other times we want a record to match our feelings or to get us to feel a certain thing and we're going to choose a record with a strong melody. Sometimes we want to be cognitively impressed. We're going to choose a record that has a certain style that we like. Every single time we reach for that computer mouse or that button on our phone in order to play a song, that's indicative that your brain wants something. It's Mm. craving a certain kind of treat, and it knows from past experience the records in your playlist that are going to deliver that particular treat for you. Mm.
2: Susan Rogers, a couple things. First, I can see why Prince loved you. I mean, what an intimate relationship to work with an artist, helping them create their sound. Can you tell us a little bit about how the heck did this happen? You go from, you know, a 20-year-old with your, you know, defiant vow that you're going to mix live some great somebody's music someday, and then you're doing it.
3: I've always had a passion for music, but I had no compulsion to want to be a performer or a songwriter or anything like that. I I wanted to be someone who assisted in the making of records, kind of a midwife for records being birthed into the world. I started in 1978, and you wouldn't see a lot of women recording engineers or record producers. I, I never saw any But the thing I could do that would give me entree into the studio was being an audio technician. My job in Hollywood in the late 70s, early 80s was to repair the equipment, the consoles and the tape machines and things. But in 1983, just as he was coming off the 1999 tour, Prince sent out the word that he was looking for a technician. He hired me. He liked working with women. Because he was Prince... He could transition me from the technician role of working way behind the scenes to the engineering role and being a little bit artistically more creative. Eventually, I was able to parlay that into a career as a record producer.
2: Mm. Well, we want to make sure we touch on authenticity. Something feels authentic to you, and it may not to other people at all. And you use as an example a band we've talked about here on the program, which is the Shags Sisters. Uh, their dad was convinced they'd be a great musical band back in the 60s, 70s, but they had no formal training. And when the dad brought them in to record, the engineers were, couldn't believe what they were hearing. <laughs> Let's listen. This is uh, I'm So Happy When You're Near.
4: I'm
2: Okay, um, the shags, you rave about them. So did uh,
3: Frank Zappa, Rolling Stone. Why? To folks in the music business, the shags are a very valuable reminder of what true musical intentionality sounds like. If you take a child's finger painting, you can look at that finger painting, and you know it's never going to hang in a museum. There's zero technique there in a toddler's finger painting. That finger painting represents pure intentionality. A little child thinking to him or herself, I want to show what my world is like, minus any technique whatsoever. That purity of intention is raw and naked in the shags. So when we have an artist in the studio and they're on the other side of the control room glass and they're playing every note perfectly, but you can tell that their head isn't in it. They're just going through the motions. That's when you want to remind them, listen to the shags. Because there's so much gusto in what they're playing, and the wrong note played with gusto is always going to sound better than the right note played timidly. We need the shags because they're at the extreme end of the dimension of authenticity.
2: That's Susan Rogers, co-author with Ogi Ogas. Uh, this is what it sounds like What the music you love says about you. She's a cognitive neuroscientist and also a professor at the Berkeley College of Music. Susan, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Robin.
3: It was a pleasure.
0: One of my fondest concert memories is when I went to go see Florida Georgia Line with Nelly opening. And when I've told a few non-country music fans about that pairing, more than a few of them were kind of surprised. And I guess you can't blame them if you consider country music's complicated relationship with black music and black people. Francesca Royster's new book, Black Country Music, digs into that relationship and tells NPR's Juana Summers not just about the past, but the experimentation going on in the scene today.
4: Author Francesca Royster was constantly surrounded by country music growing up in Nashville, but as a Black queer woman, she struggled to connect.
1: I never really knew my place in it or heard my own story or my own voice in the sound. Until her daughter started
4: listening to Lil Nas X. I'm
1: gonna take my horse to the I'm gonna ride till I can't no
4: more Hearing her and
1: her friends listen to this music over and over again I thought well that that has a lot of country elements to it This is a song where I hear the spirit of black resistance and creativity And also a kind of sense of humor about country. It just got me digging into the future of the genre where some of the limits and gatekeepers are are less important.
4: And that's exactly what she does in her new book, Black Country Music, Listening for Revolutions. In it, Royster explores the way in which listening to country music can be loaded for Black people, a discomfort she compares to coming out. In my own neighborhood, there's a country music
1: bar and I've only gone a few times just because of the perception of being not welcome or being an intruder. And sometimes that feeling of moving in spaces that feel very uh, protected and patrolled is what coming out feels like to me, you know, as a queer woman, too. That looking over your shoulder feeling is something that it's not an accident. I think it it is Part of the ways that country sometimes operates in our culture to cement an idea of a certain kind of of whiteness that, you know, those of us who might not fit those uh, identities are meant to feel outside.
4: And she says that outsider status even applied to Black performers like country music star Charlie Pride. He would sometimes open his shows with jokey disclaimers to a room of largely white faces.
2: I said, ladies and gentlemen, I realize it's kind of unique, me coming out here on a country music show wearing this permanent tan.
1: And he would he would use humor, the humor of kind of having this impressive tan as a way to get people laughing and then kind of move on from there.
0: They say that time will heal all no wounds in mice and men.
1: I think actually it was a very savvy way to pay attention And just kind of name the elephant in the room of
4: his blackness and then move on. I'd like to turn to another artist that you write about. And I have to confess, I was not too familiar with Tina Turner's first solo album, Tina Turns the Country, on that came out back in 1974. put us in place, where was this album situated in Tina Turner's incredible career?
1: So Tina Turner made this album at a point when she had already reached an incredible amount of notoriety as part of the Ike and Tina Turner review. It's a cover album, and she makes it when she is on the verge of separating from Ike Turner. And I I can't help but think that these songs aren't shaped by where her life was. And just this experience of having um, survived this tumultuous marriage that also included incredible artistic control over over the kinds of music that she could cover.
4: Is there an example of a song that speaks to that? I really love her cover
1: of Chris Kristofferson's Help Me Make It Through the Night.
3: I don't care.
1: You know, the lyrics are also a seduction in a way, but I think under underlying it is this incredible feeling of loneliness. So when I was listening, I was listening to Tina's voice, which feels, to me, her own take on Chris Kristofferson's vulnerability, but you know, given a black woman's kind of framework of experience.
3: I don't want to be alone.
1: So to me, it's such a strong sign. Help
3: me make it through the night. And
1: one where you really see the drama and the intimacy that country music can offer.
4: Francesca, culture and music both can evolve quickly and it's a space that is full of innovation and reinvention. When you think of the future of Black country music, what do you think it might look like and sound like? Well, I think that what is so absolutely
1: awesome is the ways that some of the Black country artists are opening up hybrids of sound and storytelling that wasn't there before. So I'm thinking about Valerie June.
0: Well, if you tired and feel so lonely,
1: we Who isn't exclusively a country music artist.
0: That only if you have somebody
1: but who's definitely drawing a lot on her own country roots and interest in country music traditions in the kind of new music that she's making. And I'm thinking of um, some subcultural folks like um, Camera Thomas or Delilah Black, and they're also like bringing together country with protest music, country with punk. I feel like this kind of like experimental work with country music, sound, and storytelling is going to influence the genre as a whole, even when it's not happening necessarily on the main stages of country music, like the Grand Ole Opry.
4: Earlier, you talked about how there is a bar in your neighborhood that plays country music, and you don't often go, and you talked about that discomfort for many Black people, including yourself, of being in these largely white spaces where country music is front and center. And I I guess I wonder if over time, do you think that there are more spaces that are evolving for Black country fans like yourself to feel safe? I think that they are evolving. Maybe the next
1: thing I should do after this is to open my own country music bar. But I think that part of what's changing is the ways that artists are banding together to organize and perform collaboratively. And I think when the performers are also finding safety in numbers, I think that that's also um, something that might change the future for listeners as well.
4: And just to be very clear here, if you open that Black Country bar, you've got to invite all of us. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Francesca Royster is the author of Black Country Music, Listening for Revolutions. It's out now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. This is great.
0: That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Jacob Conrad, Lily Kurose, Deepar Parvaz, Ashley Lisenby, Olivia Hampton, Lisa Wiener, Julie Deppenbrock, Melissa Gray, Andrew Craig, Emiko Tamagawa, Matt Ozug, and Karen Zamora. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Editor. Thanks for listening.